Amen. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to trick you a little bit. It sounds like we're going back to where we are in our series, but actually we're going to take a little break today. We have some exciting news to announce you to you, and I'd like to do that in the form of uh, a challenge from the Scriptures. So you're turning to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6 is where we'll begin. And I want to propose this thought to you, church. What really, I mean, let's get rid of all the, the religious uh, ritual that goes on and on. Let's get rid of all the extra expectations that people have put upon church and the misunderstandings and even our own sometimes desires of what we think this whole thing really is about. Let's put all that aside for a minute, shall we? What exactly are we supposed to be doing? What is this all about anyway? And we've studied grace, grow, go as our simple process, but, but isn't it true that God wants for his people, the people that he died for and redeemed, he wants for his people to know and to experience him personally. Isn't that really true? That's what churches are led to do. That's the purpose of being a church in today's world. We are to experience God as a a group, as a body. We are to experience God individually, each one of us. It's not so much coming to church so that we can learn more about God. It's being part of the church so that we can experience more of God. Do you see the difference? It's a marked difference. It, it, it makes all the difference in the world. And I want to say to you this morning, because this is the important part to know, about following God isn't always easy. Is that true? I mean, to know and experience God real in a personal way sometimes means that we have to follow him to places where we wouldn't otherwise go. Sometimes they're scary places. Sometimes There are places of unknown and uncertainty. Sometimes the places where we go to experience God, in order to experience God, are places of huge impossibility. Isn't that true? Do we find that true to be in the scriptures? Yes, we do. All the way through, God teaches us this lesson. And I want you to know, you you have the right to know this as your pastor here at Cross Point Community Church. God has placed a very clear call on my life. 26 years ago, I surrendered to the ministry, and this is what I surrendered to. God, I will lead your church, I will serve your church, above all else, to follow you and experience you before anyone else. That's what I'm doing. That is the deepest conviction that drives my relationship with you. It drives my leadership in the church, and it drives everything that I propose and think that we might need to do in order to continue to follow God. So we will be challenged to follow God, and we know that that implies, that means that we will be called to experience him in the places that are difficult for us to go, the places of challenge and impossibility, the crisis of our belief to continue to follow him. We're being led into the impossible. I mean, think about it. Grace, grow, go, and all the things that we're trying to do to reach the community. We've identified this as a major thrust of what God wants us to do, that we would make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, right? And that means that people's lives will be transformed. And so I started saying, Cross Point Community Church, us, we should be a transformation center. We should expect and look forward to seeing lives that are transformed. And then transformed lives go out into the community and transform the community and the world. That's what God wants to do as we experience him together. But that brings us to this place, this huge crisis of belief, because that is not something that we can do on our own. We don't know how to do that. Let me tell you a short story that I heard about recently of another group of people who are trying to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and their crisis of belief. Last Sunday evening, a local congregation here in Reading chose to close down and dissolve a relationship with Liberty Christian School. Liberty Christian School being one of the primary Christian education institutions in Reading. And you could imagine, perhaps, being a student at that school, a first grader, a second grader, or perhaps a junior high student. Or what about a junior looking forward to your senior year next year? 
or the families that have sacrificed greatly to put their children into Christian schools so that they can learn the foundation of biblical truths to make disciples, to make disciples, to make disciples. And can you imagine suddenly the, the, the school exists no more? But, but 53 years of, of testimony, of, of goodness, of God working and being faithful, where has he gone? What would he have us to do? And before we get too far, now listen, the local church owned the school and they found that it's no longer reasonable for a church to own a Christian school. Before we get critical or judgmental, that is happening in Christian churches all across America. It is very difficult for a church to have a Christian school. And this community and the Christians at large owe nothing to that local congregation except gratitude and admiration for 53 years of great sacrifice. So we don't judge their motives. They're learning to experience God and following him on their own path. But nonetheless, it leaves over 100 families homeless, reeling with anxiety and uncertainty and fear. How do we continue to follow God into the impossible? Well, by God's sovereignty, I believe with all of my heart that he has led Cross Point Community Church and Liberty Christian School to the same crisis of belief. That we would partner together in trusting God and moving forward to experience God and what he can do by faith and obedience. So I'm going to be leading Cross Point Community Church to form a partnership with Liberty Christian School and starting next fall, the school will begin meeting using our facilities. Amen. Now, the first question that came to my mind, and I'm sure comes to your mind, is why on earth would we do something like that? Well, it's a fair question, isn't it? Why? What's the value? What's at stake here? And so I want to preach to you this morning two very simple biblical truths that will help us. Now, you need to understand, church, my motive in teaching you this and making this decision is, I hope you've learned this by now, to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's the mission that's the motive. So we're going to be looking at discipleship. Making disciples is called discipleship. And so first and foremost, a Christian school is a means of discipleship. So why would we consider a Christian school? Why do they exist? What's the value of them? They can help us make disciples of children who grow up. Now before we get too far, let's just build the foundation according to God's word properly. The role and responsibility of discipling children rests first in the home. It's the parent's job. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and look there at verse 4. The Bible says, And you fathers do not pro provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That word training is preparation. It is and training and admiration of the Lord is how children would be raised, not just to face life, but to face life as a disciple of Jesus Christ, that they need to be prepared to do that. And it's the parent's responsibility first and foremost. Listen, there's no other institution that God has created that we can cast and abdicate our burden upon for the discipleship of our children than our own families and our own homes. That has to happen first. Secondly, God has challenged the church to help families discipling children. Ephesians chapter 4, one, one important principle about the church is that we are also to make disciples of the children who come from homes where parents are training up children in the training and admonition of the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 11, God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. For what? For the work of ministry. That's called discipleship. For the edifying of the body of Christ, which is also known as the church. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, verse 13 says, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You see, you see it's the church's role in part to prepare people for this 
onslaught of trickery and winds of doctrine and cunning craftiness that the world opposes us with. He said, but we should speak the truth in love and may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Now look at verse 16. From whom the whole body, that's the church, joined and knit together by what every joint, that's each person's participation, supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body and edification of itself in love. See, growth and edification are simply successful discipleship terms. That we, we grow in stability, in depth, in commitment, in doctrine. So it's the home's responsibility first. Then the church comes alongside and supports the parents in the home as they disciple children. But there's something very important that seems to be missing today. I mean, those are clearly the biblical mandates, and yet, I'm going to show you in just a minute, we're not really being very successful at that. So I want to invite you to turn all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I want to point out a possible third method of discipling children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, now this is the main commandment of God to the children of Israel, to his people. How do we be your people, God? How are we going to do this, the Israelites say? We're going to be this only people who live for God and we're going to live in this pagan world where they're opposed and don't understand? How do we do this? How do we raise our children? Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 7 says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. That's the commandments of God. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And verse 9 says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates. Now that's a, a commandment it's a method that God has given his people to train up children that are going to be his people. And you notice that it begins with God's word. He says they have to be taught who I am. They have to be taught my ways. There's instruction that must occur. But there's something very important for us to notice because in, in uh, 2017 in America... We have an entirely different culture and social economic structure. The world is much different than the context where God gave this commandment to his people. You see, children people, or Jewish people, their children, as they grew up, were to learn God's ways in the home, in the, in a sense, nation of being God's people, and also in, in community instruction. You see... You shall teach them diligently when you talk with them, when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And the Jewish people, in order to fulfill that sort of weighty, significant task, formed training institutions for their children. And you got to understand, they in that day and age lived with their children in tow, nearby, for most of the day. Most of the community life involved ongoing dialogue between the parents and the children, and they were able to talk about how to practice God's way in everyday life as situations arose when you walk along the way, when you rise up and when you lie down. Here's how to obey God's word. There is some everyday life context that needs to go beyond the classroom into how do we do this together, folks? And see, in today's world, right, wrong, or indifferent, the truth is that many times parents are forced to let go of influence of their kids for most of the day, most of the week. Isn't that true? You send your kids to school today. We, we don't have Jewish community and school where all the parents are teaching all the children together the ways of God, and certainly that would work most effectively, but we don't even live in a day where you can possibly do that. The context doesn't match, and so there, there needs to be entities, there needs to be organizations that take 
when the kids are gone from home all day learning what is right and what do I do, that we instill this very same values that are at home, the very same values that are reinforced in church, also in their academic learning. And it's not possible for everyone to send every kid to Christian school. There are many different ways to disciple children using the public school system today, for sure. There are many different ways that parents choose to utilize homeschooling to disciple their their children. But I'm saying that in a day and an age which it's so important, we should probably do everything we possibly can to make sure to give our young people, our children, our students, the greatest success of learning to walk with God that we possibly can. I did a little study this week, a little research. Let me share with you how we're doing so far in America. It's statistically shown that roughly 46% of born-again adults believe that moral truth is absolute. That's less than half Christians believe that truth is truth according to God. They think the circumstances change truth by majority. That's today. 40% of born-again adults are convinced that Satan is a real force. 40%. How are we doing so far? Not too good. 63% of teenage Christians don't believe that Jesus is the son of true God. Did you hear that? 63% of teenage Christians don't believe that Jesus is the son of true God. Of one true God. 51% don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 68% don't believe that the Holy Spirit is a real entity. I hope you're listening to the statistics. These are taken from polls, interviews, and talking with real people, not speculation. Lifeway Research recently came out with a cooperative effort, statistical analysis with Barna, George Barna, and they determined that about 70% of young adults who indicated they attended church regularly in high school do in fact drop out when they go to college, drop out of church. 70% graduate high school in Christian homes, attending church regularly, walk away from the church in their college years. And they've done some follow-up study recently that show only about 30% of them through the remainder of their life will one day return through crisis. If I had to grade us as a church in America, I'd say we're not getting a very good score right now. A study found that 88% of the children in evangelical homes leave the church at age 18. So you say, what about those that don't go to college? What about those that just go off into vocational careers? Well, it's said that 88% of all of our children are leaving the church as soon as they leave home. And you might think, well, why? What's what's the major cause? What are they dealing with that's causing them to abandon church and to not be able to continue to be a disciple who makes disciples? Here's the top four reasons that they summarize. They left because they had trouble answering questions about their faith. They left because their faith was not working for them. It wasn't real. They left because they allowed other things in their life to take priority and became more important than God. And they left because they never personally owned their faith. Church, that's a mess. What does that show us? Does it show us that, you know, we need a better Sunday school program or perhaps we need to do a different upward outreach? Does it show us that we need to use a different translation of the Bible when we preach on Sundays or sing different kinds of music when we gather? No. It shows us that we as Christians in America, listen to me carefully, 
are failing miserably at properly discipling our own children. We're failing in the home in some cases, we're failing in the church in many cases, and we're failing because we let them go into the schools and we allow a secular, humanistic, anti-God message to form their thought process. And they see in our own lives that our own faith is not real, and they're never led to experience God by stepping out into great impossible feats where God promises to be the only one who can be faithful. We don't do those things as churches anymore, and so their faith is not real. Hey, listen, it didn't take me too long. It did take me a little while, but it didn't take me too long to realize this. There's a Christian school of over 100 families without a home. There's a church that has over 23 classrooms, mostly unused. And they're both seeking to follow God to make disciples in the context of a miserably failing mission. Do you see where I'm going? Do you see where I'm going? You see, a Christian school can be another means to help us disciple children so that when they get to those adult years, and listen, you got to understand, if you're old like me, (laughs) hey, I'm getting close to 50. (laughs) I know it doesn't look like it. I know. Shock and awe. No way. He looks 35, right? That's what you were thinking. And I know there are a lot of people older than me here today. You need to understand something. We don't even comprehend the world that our children are facing when they leave home today. We can't possibly. It is so different. The opposition is so much greater than ever before. We need to be doing more for our children to be solid and founded and owning their faith, and critically thinking through the issues of life based on an analysis of God's word, and trusting him by faith when it becomes difficult or impossible. That's what we have to do better at. Better now more than ever in America. If we care. I don't know about you, but I care. I care deeply. So Christian school is a means of discipling children. That's why I would consider such a thing. The second thing is equally as important, and this applies more to us, even if we don't have children in Christian school, and that is this. Following God into the impossible is also a means of discipleship. Not long ago, most of our church... Almost all the adults and teenagers went through a Bible study called Experiencing God. Do you remember that? It wasn't so long ago, and you thought, why is our pastor taking us through this workbook and making everybody go through this, you know, where you had daily homework? You remember some of you were just so mad at me and angry, and why, you know, make us do homework every day? And you remember by the end of that 13 weeks, there was a general consensus sweeping throughout our entire church body. This is new. This is what we're missing. This is how we learn to personally know and experience God. Because he reveals himself when he's at work. And then when he reveals himself, that revelation becomes an invitation for his people. Hey, I'm showing you what I'm doing, and I want you to join me here. And then God's people realize, uh-oh, to join him there means I have to really trust him. I can't do that. There's, there's not enough resources in my pockets. I, I'm not capable. I've never done that before. There's unknowns and impossibilities, and that's called the crisis of belief. And that's where we learn to really, truly trust and know God personally. Because we say yes by faith and obedience. And that's how a church is discipled. It's a means of discipleship for God's people. Well, that's where we're at, Crosspoint. Write this down on your outline card. God is calling Crosspoint to step out in faith. You see, because if you start to analyze the details. Well, what would it mean to have a Christian school of 155 kids and their own entity, not really any part of the church? 
what would that be like to have them here Monday through Friday? And we start thinking about all the things, the wear and tear in the building, and we start thinking about, well, wait a minute, we're just now barely getting our classrooms back into shape and in order. We still have lots of repairs, and that's going to just come fast and furious. And, and what about the expenses? How do we keep all the costs separated for, for the school that are not the churches, and how do we navigate the, those very difficult discussions? School has the same questions, the same unknowns. And many of us who have been around for a while also know of times where it has not worked very well. And even in our own church, having a Christian school on the campus has been the source of severe trauma, hurt, and pain for many. Some of you who are still here today. It requires an enormous step of faith. There are not only impossibilities, but there are unknowns. And how on earth does this work? And see, what I want to teach you, church, I'm hoping and I'm praying, I'm begging you to listen to me. you got to hear this. We're going to be as diligent as possible. Okay? But ultimately, it's not our diligence that's going to provide a miraculous movement of God's power. And that's what we need, isn't it? We need that for the impossibilities. We need that for the children to be discipled in today's world. We need that for our own existence. It is the obedient step of faith that brings the provision of God. So what I want you to hear is, yes, it's impossible, but God's calling us to trust him and to step out in faith anyway. And we learned three basic things. These are probably review for you, but most of us struggle with actually living them out. The first one is this. God promises blessing in the face of opposition. Right? See, well, isn't God a God of blessing, and doesn't he give his people great things? I mean, I've read of that somewhere in the Bible, haven't you? That God wants to do, am I the only one? I need to go to a different church. I'm going to go down the street and see if there's one that believes God wants to bless his people. Okay? And then, do you believe it? Is it true that God blesses his own people? Yes, it's true. But we also need to read those passages and the context so many times. He's blessing his people even as they are stepping into opposition that looks like he may not bless them think that's true in the Bible. I, I walked through my history this week, and I looked at Abraham and how God called him to leave his home to a place, oh, that's right, a place that he didn't even know of. Take his whole family with him. That sounds like a crisis of belief to me. Then we remember that God called Joseph. Oh, Joseph, I'm going to use you greatly. I'm going to bless your socks off, Joseph. I'm going to make you a great man of God. You're going to be used by me. How's that? Well, you're going to be thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. Oh, okay, then what? Then you're going to be put into prison because you'll be falsely accused even though you did what was right. Oh, okay, when, when does the blessing come? And then when you continue to step out in faith and trust me, you're going to see me move and do things that you have never even imagined after you obey me. Yeah, perfect. What about Moses? Moses, lead my people. Was it easy for Moses to lead the people? to trust him, to be delivered from Egypt? What about the wilderness? A land of rock and no water, no food. They didn't even have clothes, and God sustained them. When? After they went. Manna and water from the rock. Yep, seems like God works that way. What about the divided kingdoms? To unite the people of God and bless them, they were, God was constantly calling them in repentance to re trust him in areas where they have not trusted him in so long and when they failed they did not experience God's blessing we saw that over and over again in the prophets and then Jesus came oh when Jesus came he changed all that right he made it so that blessings from God come even when it's easy right that's what Jesus that's what grace is all about right that's what the New Testament age is let's see deny yourself take up your cross and follow me no, I think he's trying to say in order to follow him, it's going to cost us. I think he's trying to say in order to experience him, we're going to have to make sacrifice and, and, and trust him. 
Our cross is the symbol of putting our own efforts and our own agenda and our own control of our life to crucifixion, that it no longer exists. And then the disciples followed Jesus and they trusted him and they thought it was going to come in the form of a, a new kingdom and deliverance, but it came to a cross and death. And then the New Testament church was born and they thought, here we go. Now God's going to fill us with his spirit at Pentecost came. And then what happened? The first 300 years of church life were probably the most severe opposition and persecution that Christians have ever known. And yet those are the years where the church has grown exponentially in its greatest form. God continually leads his people into difficulty where they cannot accomplish what he wants them to do so that they will know him personally. I think probably the greatest, most fundamental, foundational story in the Bible that teaches us this is God's call for the Israelites, his chosen people, to leave Egypt into the wilderness to a place called the promised land. Now for Israel, that means things that me and you, we, we probably don't even understand to, to have that geographical location, to be a nation in Israel and the land that God gave them has things that, that, that we don't even, I, I'm not even sure how to internalize that, but this much I do know, it was all done as the primary example to show how God works. He showed the Israelites how he works so that the church could follow the very same pattern in the age of grace. And if you watch the pattern, it's a central theme throughout the scripture. God delivers by grace. He gives his word. He, he, he allows worship and forgiveness. And he does that on the journey, watch this, on the journey moving forward into the place of promise that has giants and fortified cities and is scary. Do you remember? God promised great blessing to Israel in the promised land, but it came with great opposition. As a matter of fact, if you really don't believe that's true, you should go back and read in Numbers chapters 13 and 14 in the Bible and see what happened to the Jewish people that were brought to the promised land. And God said, okay, here it is. It's time. We've been in the wilderness. You've learned to trust me with manna and water from the rock and your clothes have not worn out and I've protected you. And here's the place where I've been leading you to where you're really going to know me. You're really going to be my people. I'm going to glorify myself greatly. And they got to the edge of the promised land and they sent in spies just, just in case, just to see what to expect when they get there, this place of great promise from God. And you remember the story, the spies came back, ah, no way. They're huge. These obstacles, this opposition that we would face if we were to go there is enormous. The cities are fortified. They have giant walls and, and, and water cisterns and, and armies and all kinds of opposition. And they outnumber us by the multitudes. There's no way we could do that. There's no way. Which brings me to point number two. You ready for this, church? We can miss God by unbelief. We can miss him to not experience him through unbelief. Now I want to show you where that exists in your Bible. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. One of my favorite passages, and it's not really a fun passage, I'm just going to tell you right up front. But the truth is enormous. And the potential blessing is huge for God's people. And the writer of Hebrews knew that we would struggle with this just like the children of Israel struggled with this, even though we were the church, even though we've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and even though we've been delivered from bondage by grace through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have the entire compilation of the scriptures from beginning to end, the perfect, inerrant, uncompromising truth right before us. Every single one of us has a copy. Even with all that, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews knew it would be tough to follow God. 
He says, verse 7, therefore, chapter 3, verse 7, are you there? If you're there, say amen. amen. Okay, some of you aren't there or you're not wanting to speak up. I'm just going to wait. If you're there, say amen. amen. Okay, that's a little better. Just a warning now. We're going to stay together in the scripture here. Watch what it says. Look at verse 7. Right there. Look what it says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, what does the Holy Spirit say to us? Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What rebellion is he referring to? In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. 40 years, I think that's about the length of time the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, wasn't it? Am I right? Thank you. Therefore, God says, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. They didn't experience me. So I swore in my wrath, God says, they shall not enter my rest. Whoa, this is talking about that generation of Israelites that chose not to go into the promised land. Do you see that? Keep reading, verse 12. Beware, brethren. Now, now stop. Look up here for just a second, folks. Whenever we read brethren, and you can insert sister in if you want to, if you're a lady, that's talking to the New Testament church. That's talking to us today. Beware. That's warning. Don't miss this. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of market unbelief in departing from the living God. He says, don't miss God leading you to the place of promise, of blessing, of abundance, so that you'll know him and experience like they did by not believing that he is capable of taking care of all the giants and fortified cities and impossibilities that lay before you when he calls you to go. Is it not what it's saying there? I really want to know. You're here today. If you don't get it, that's okay. If you don't see that, you don't understand that, you can just do like this so I know. You're saying, look, you're off your rocker, bud. I don't know. I'm not following you. I'm not tracking. Do you see it? This is where God is telling his people how to experience him, to not miss it. How do we miss it? Unbelief. I don't believe God is capable of overcoming all those problems that it would take to have a school on our campus next fall. That's unbelief. Verse 16, continuing on. By the way, verse 15, he repeated it just in case we're slow and miss it. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16, for who, that's the people of the rebellion, having heard, rebelled. Who was it, he said? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now, is there any question about who he's talking about here? This is the exact scenario he's referring to. Wasn't it them, he said, that missed them, that entire generation? Now, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. So we see that they could not enter because of... Because of... They could not enter to experience God because of unbelief. And the people of God that choose to not believe him into the difficult places where he calls them will not experience his rest. They will not put out families and children who are strong in their faith living to make disciples advance the kingdom of God and bring him glory. 
they'll miss God. Doesn't mean anybody's going to lose their salvation. But I don't want to miss God in this life, do you? It could happen through unbelief. Now, I know a lot of us, we, we've, we've tried some of this stuff before, haven't you? Some of you? Like, I've trusted God before. We've stepped out in faith. We've done some things. Hey, listen, look around this campus. This is a, this is a church that's been around since the early 60s and done some incredible things for the kingdom of God. I mean, incredible. Missionaries all around the world. Shasta Bible College and the mission. So many other areas where, I mean, God just used this congregation greatly. And if you'll talk to the pastor who was there, because I have, every single time it was a crisis of belief. And we've tried it before, and here's the, here's the rub. Here's the rub, church. Sometimes it didn't work out so well. You say, well, something happened. And you know, there was some bad blood between a school here and our church one time. And some things happened that were hurtful and bad, and you might describe it as a failure. Don't know what happened to God there. And so I would never want to go back there because I've seen that before and it's too much pain. I, I, could, never, I could never support that. C can I remind you, Luke chapter 5? I want to remind you, because I know that's some of us, right? In this room, I've done that before and it didn't work. I'm not going back. That's not God, because it hurt last time. Right? Hello? Right? All right, look at Luke 5. Let's just see what happens in that scenario. Jesus is talking to Peter now, showing Peter, here's how you handle this, Peter. I'm going to teach you how to be a follower right from the very beginning. And, and Jesus wants to speak to this crowd, the multitudes on the, on the bank, right? And he comes and he first meets Peter because Peter's a fisherman and he, and he had been out fishing and he brought his boat up and there's his boat with all the other fishermen. And Jesus needs to get out a little bit in the water so that he can use the, 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 the body of water as a natural amplification system to preach to the multitudes. And so he gets into Peter's boat. Verse 3, then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. Jesus is doing something here. God's moving. He's, he's wanting to show people who he is. And he's talking about it. And Peter's just sort of this unwilling servant using his boat. And then when he finishes, he turns to Peter in verse 4. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now what does that have to do with preaching to the multitudes? No, it doesn't have anything to do with preaching the multitudes. This has to do with Peter. Well, Jesus says to Peter, hey, let's go out and catch some fish. And you, Peter answered and said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. So, what are you crazy? It's the wrong time of the day. There's no fish biting right now. Listen, Jesus, I know you got this rabbi stuff. Got it. You're pretty good at that stuff. I'll, I'll give you that much. And the preaching was cool. I mean, wow. Right? But fishing is my, that's my, my, my backyard. Right? I know fishing. That's the area where I know exactly what to do and what not to do. I'm the expert. I have a lifetime of experience. There's no sense. There's no way. I can't see it happening. I just got back and it didn't happen. I just experienced the failure of catching fish. And you want me to go back out? And Peter says something amazingly insightful that would benefit most of us in our life today. He says, nevertheless, oh, hello. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net and when he did there was such a great catch of fish that he didn't even have in his own resources enough nets to hold them all that means it was more fish than he had ever caught in his entire career in all of his experiences 
He knew the greatest success when God called him to step out and do something that he had previously failed to do. I'm done. I don't know what else to say. If that doesn't get you nothing well, church. Did you see that? Hello? Are you breathing? Let's check your pulse. When I read that, I get so stinking excited. You know why? Because I've failed in a lot of areas in my life. And I've tried. And I've gone out and risked it and, and, and tried to, God, I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to do this for you. And I've been hurt. And I've been criticized. And I've been let down and abandoned. And yet I'm encouraged because God keeps calling me to go back to those places to give of myself again. Because he says, when you do it, at my word, you will experience my power. Ooh. I could preach on that all day, church. You just get ready, right? That's encouraging. That's important for me to know if I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Brings us to the final point. How do we experience God then, Pastor? How do we really experience him? We experience God by faith and obedience. See, James tells us what good is your faith if you're not willing to obey and do it. That's not faith. That's false faith. That's pseudo-faith. That's the faith that we put a, a sign on and say, look, we're a church. We trust God and believe God. At our church, we, we have the, the Bible. Oh, but, but we don't ever, in our faith, we don't ever obey and to step into those scary, dangerous places because that hurts too much. And that's how we fail to experience God. But we can experience God, church. We can experience the nets of our children and transform lives so full that we, we don't even have enough capacity to contain them all. And they're going out into the world to transform the world for the glory of God. We can experience that. God is capable to do that in his church. Hey, he wants to do that in his church. What does it take? It takes our obedience. It takes our obedience. We have to go. We have to say yes. So we form a partnership with the school. It's impossible, sure. But the mission is clear. Make disciples who make disciples. The context shows it's very necessary. It fits with grace, grow, go, the mission that God's given us. And we have all this unused space. And so we're going to step out in faith. And we're going to take a risk. And we're going to say, yes, God, I can't do it. There's no way. We'll do the very best we can. But we're trusting in your word. We're trusting in you to work in the lives of these students. We're trusting you to show us as a church body when we say yes, that you are worthy. So that our own children, whether they end up going to Liberty Christian School or not, our own children are part of a church that steps out in faith and knows and experiences God so that when they face the opposition of life, their faith is their own, and it means something beyond a textbook, and they know personally of God's great power and glory. That's why we do it. In Joshua, you don't have to turn there right now, I'm going to close with this thought. In the book of Joshua, we have the next generation after those that didn't go to the promised land. They said, no, we're not going to do it, it's too scary, and you read in Hebrews, God was angry. They didn't experience him. So the next generation came. And the two guys of that entire generation who thought, you know, really, we should go because God said he'll do it. Joshua and Caleb, those two ended up surviving and living to lead the next generation for the same option. And God called them to the Jordan River. You remember, it was at flood stage. It was raging. I mean, what kind of God is this that says, hey, follow me? And then you walk right into this raging, flooding river to drown. The same one who called them to walk into the Red Sea and provided dry ground. And the, the giants were still in the land. The fortified cities were still there. Do you remember? In chapter 3, listen carefully. You don't have to turn there right now if you don't want, but listen. Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites the Hittites, the Hivites, and the Parasites. Okay. Parasites. The Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Those, all those ites were the enemies in the land. The giants. They were the obstacle. 
Verse 13 says, And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan will be cut off. And the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So it was when the people set out from the camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord. And the ground dried up as far as 20 miles away at Adam. When did God dry up the raging, flooding river? Before they stepped in? No. When they stepped in. And this generation knew of God's power and victory. And there's something that I noticed this week. Um, I'm just wondering if you want to be a people like Joshua and Caleb. Like that generation that said, we're not going to make the same mistake in unbelief, but we're going to go. I wonder if there's anybody here that wants to be part of a church that says that. I wonder if, if our congregation this morning together, whether you're a, a first-time guest or visitor or you've been part of the church since its inception, I wonder if you're here this morning, you know what, I think and I believe that God wants us to do this and I want to step out in faith together with everybody else and watch the Jordan dry up and cross over into the land and surround Jericho and watch the walls fall down by God's own power. I want to be that people. And not only that, is there anybody in here that wants your children or your grandchildren to see that happen in your life? Is there anybody that wants that? I'm just wondering. You can slip your hand up if you want to. How about we have children meeting in CPK and Discovery Kids right now. Some of them are our own children and grandchildren. How many want those children to be part of a church that says and does, I will believe and step out in faith and see God do something wonderful and powerful and miraculous? How many people? Anybody want to be part of that? I do too. And when God led the children of Israel over into the promised land, he said, oh, by the way, when you're in the middle of that dry riverbed, I want, I want a representative from each tribe to pick up a stone. And when you get over the other side to a place called Gilgal, I'm going to preach on that someday, Gilgal. And, and, and I want you to pile up those stones. Well, okay, why should we do that, God? Because it's going to be important for you to remember the day I provided for you. And not only that, Someday your kids are going to walk by that monument of stones and they're going to say, hey, Dad, what's this pile of stones we always pass by here? And God said, you can tell them, this is from when we crossed over that raging river, miraculous by God, and he promised to give us this land, and he did. Son, daughter, grandchild, you can trust God. He's faithful to his word. And you see, this is an example for you to rely upon. So I'm going to ask you this morning, if you'll reach down in the floor underneath your chair, you'll find a little stone. There should be one under every seat. And, you know, you might have to reach around and get, get, get one next to you. <laughs> if you don't bend so well, I'll give you a second to get down there and crawl around, whatever it takes. Get some help from somebody next to you. Everybody get a stone, if you would. Everybody have a stone? All right, let's imagine. We're going to have to use our imagination a little bit, right? Because not all of these came from the Jordan River, I promise you. I have one that, one that did, but these don't. This came from Home Depot. So, so stay with me here. Stay with me. Let's imagine, let's imagine that this stone represents all of us today and our commitment to say, yes, God, we will step out in faith. We will trust you at your word and into the face of opposition and difficulty and the fear of the unknown and where we've previously failed before, we're going to trust you to do great and mighty things that we've never seen before. And we're going to pile up stones so that generationally, child after child after child and teenager after teenager after teenager and young adult after young adult and family after family will see that's the kind of people we are here at Crosspoint. And we have known God personally. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? This is going to be a response time where I'm going to ask you to actually come forward. If that's your heart this morning, if you'd like to be a part of that, right on the floor in front of the stage, I'm going to ask you to make a pile of stones. Just, God, I want to be that people. I want to obey and follow through. If God's speaking in your heart now, you can come. Come as families. Come as individuals. 
make a pile. Father, we thank you so much for calling us together to be a community, a body of people. We share mutual support and encouragement to love one another. That when it gets tough, we know that we can count on the person next to us and behind us, in front of us, all together as a, a community, a body. Help us, Lord, to respond by faith. And today we pile these stones because we believe you. We ask you to take this partnership with Cross Point and Liberty Christian School raise up strong, faithful disciples who do not walk away from you, but make disciples who make disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Would you, uh, just as we get ready to close, would you take out those chat cards? Chaplain Jim had everyone make sure that we have one. You know, you can fill out on the back of that card a response, perhaps. God, you bless my socks off. You just blow me away today. I'm excited or I'm scared or, or help me in my unbelief. Or Here's a prayer request for me. Perhaps is there anyone, maybe you've never been baptized like Susan was this morning and you thought when you saw her getting baptized, that's a, I think I need to do that. I've never done that before. What does that mean? Maybe I should. You can write on your chat card, I'm interested in baptism. We'll get together with you and talk to you about that and see if we can help you with that decision as well to see God do greater things in your life. That card 
will go in the offering plate as it comes by in just a moment. Ushers, if you'll come forward at this time. We also want to challenge everyone to be faithful in tithes and offerings. And Our offering time is sweet, isn't it? Say, what? Our, our giving of money is sweet? Yes, it is. Because that's the area in our personal lives where we get to do the very same thing. We get to give to God obediently and trust him to do what he can do with the rest of all of our finances. We acknowledge that God is the giver of everything good, every dollar we have. And so we give back to him faithfully, sacrificially, and joyfully. As we do that together, it's worship. Let's worship together. Father, thank you so much. You've been so good to us. God, thank you. We're overwhelmed. So this morning we give to you. We give you our responsive obedience. We give you our heart. We give you our finances, our tithes and offerings. Take this gift, Lord, this money. and We pray it brings a smile to your face and it's pleasing to you. And do great things with it that you alone could do. In Jesus' name, amen.